Welcome to episode 105 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. I'm joined today uh, by uh, two guest commentators, uh, Peter uh, Van Valkenburg, uh, the director of research for Coin Center and a former Google Policy Fellow for Tech Freedom, and Robin Weissman, who's the senior policy counsel for Coin Center and a principal in the Sternheld Group, uh, DC-based lobbying firm. Uh, uh, they'll be interviewed by uh, um, uh, Jason Weinstein and Alan Cohn. Uh, uh, Jason, of course, formerly with the Justice Department, where he oversaw criminal computer crime prosecutions uh, uh, and now is doing criminal and civil litigation at Steptoe. And Alan Cohn, who's formerly the head of strategy for DHS, second in charge of policy at DHS and now of counsel at Steptoe. Uh, we're also joined for the news roundup uh, by Michael Vadis, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now a partner in Steptoe's New York office, uh, and by Maury Schenk, uh, uh, a former all-everything at Steptoe's uh, London office, now a private equity investor, our advisor on European technology, uh, security and privacy issues, and a director in several technology companies. Uh, I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS, and the record holder for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Let's jump right into it. I have, uh, I'm determined not to uh, talk uh, uh, at the start of, about Apple versus the FBI, um, even though there's plenty to talk about. Uh, let's talk instead about the privacy shield, uh, uh, which we got more details about over the last week uh, uh, so we can see exactly how it differs from the privacy safe harbor. Most of that difference is in the in detail rather than in anything uh, very dramatic. Uh, uh, Maury, uh, what would you say were the big two or three changes from privacy safe harbor to privacy shield? Well, on the detail, companies that join in the U.S., um, will have to be more robust. They'll have to provide more notice to their customers. The verification and enforcement will be um, more aggressive. At least the FTC and Department of Commerce have promised that it will be, and it'll probably cost some more. But it looks pretty similar in terms of process, a self-certification process to the safe harbor. The big differences are involve dispute resolution and national security. Um, I'll pick two the U.S. government has set up an ombudsman. Uh, the first one is going to be Undersecretary of State Catherine Novelli, and she's responsible for handling complaints for Europe on handling of signals intelligence data. And there's a new arbitration process, and the additional cost for companies will pay for this. And where companies have exhausted working out, uh, where EU individuals have exhausted working out privacy complaints with the company, through a dispute resolution mechanism and through a complaint to the Department of Commerce, there's an arbitration mechanism. So those are some of the key changes. So thinking about this from the point of view of companies, I'm sure that the uh, the ombudsman process and trying to put somebody from the Commerce Department in charge of evaluating complaints about the intelligence community is bound to work out perfectly. Uh, um, but uh, uh, for companies, it sounds as though uh, there's like two or three stages of dispute resolution that don't exist in Europe. Uh, and uh, if, uh, I guess my question is, how complicated is that going to be uh, if, if you've got a determined 
litigant on the other side, uh, are you going to have years of litigation that the company has to pay for? No, I think it's a possibility. I mean, it, you know, data re- um, protection disputes like this don't tend to be big litigation. The facts tend to be clear, and then it's, you know, you decide what's right. But it, it could take a while. So, yes, it's uh, it's definitely more challenging, and this dispute resolution area, area is where the Europeans can say uh, they got some victories, which may help the European Commission convince the more recalcitrant um, forces in Europe to uh, on U.S. data protection that this privacy shield should be adopted, which it has not yet been. So I, I got the impression that there's more disclosures required as well, that the consent, to get consent, you need to tell people more about how you're implementing or what you're doing under the privacy shield. Yeah, well, I mean, in Europe, there are pretty detailed principles on what privacy policies need to contain. And so the notice principle under the privacy shield is a lot more detailed than the one under the safe harbor. So U.S. privacy policies may start to have to be follow more of a European model. Now, big companies like Google or Apple, for example, are already quite detailed on what they do with data. But for smaller companies, it may be some additional explanation. In terms of disclosing what you do on the privacy shield, the big area enforcement under the safe harbor was people who had wrongly certified, and both the FTC, who was aggressive on enforcement under the safe harbor, and Department of Commerce have promised to be more aggressive under privacy shield. So companies are going to both have to be more detailed about their privacy policies and more careful about uh, keeping their certifications accurate and current. All right. Um, uh, Michael, anything that you would add to that from the point of view of a U.S. lawyer advising people who are going to be joining the Privacy Shield? No, I think Maury uh, did a pretty comprehensive job covering the, the changes. All right. Well, so the, the, the real uh, advice is uh, uh, don't uh, get too excited until you know whether this is actually going to make it through uh, uh, the European legislative and uh, um, treaty process, because uh, uh, there's lots of ways this could still go into the, uh, uh, into the woods. And we'll um, be happy to talk about it on the podcast when, if and when they finally adopt it. Endlessly, we will have fun. Uh, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the FTC because the FTC is doing some uh, uh, some very interesting things. They have their own crypto policy. Uh, uh, Commissioner McSweeney has decided that uh, um, uh, she has her own views about uh, uh, what a kind of encryption policy ought to be adopted, and uh, the FTC is uh, going to implement, though, well, at least uh, uh, she has announced that she doesn't believe in back doors, uh, doesn't believe in uh, uh, encryption regulation. So the FTC now is yet another player in U.S. Uh, policymaking, uh, developing an encryption policy. Uh, uh, the FTC also, I, I find this fascinating and, and entertaining. Uh, the FTC has long advised business that, um, of course, uh, if you um, uh, want to maintain security, you have to change people's passwords, force them to change their password 
frequently. Yeah. Uh, and then um, just uh, in the last week or so, uh, the new chief technologist for the FTC has published something based on research that I think she did, uh, showing that the more frequently you change your password, the more likely it is that people are going to guess it. Uh, because when you force people to change their passwords, they choose shorter ones. They choose mechanisms for keeping track of their passwords that make the new password much more predictable if you if you have the old one. Um, and, and so the FTC is caught in its own process of sort of covert uh, lawmaking, and now they uh, they have trouble explaining to people what the rules are. Should you uh, force uh, password changes or not? Uh, and then finally. Last FTC matter is the FTC has gotten into the business of regulating IO, uh, Internet of Things security, uh, uh, finding security flaws in routers and cloud services, and they've gotten uh, Asus Tech uh, to settle with them uh, in what is meant to be, I'm sure, a uh, precedent-setting regulation of uh, cloud and Internet of Things security. Now, Michael, I don't know if you looked more closely at that than I did. Uh, looked like, uh, as so much FTC uh, regulation looks like, uh, a pretty reasonable set of things if you just ask the, um, the average uh, CISO, uh, what do you think uh, we ought to adopt by way of security practices? Yeah, I think that's right. And it was compounded by uh, statements that the company had made about its uh, the security of its products, which the FTC alleged were uh, were untrue. And so it's the it's the basic settlement that uh, requires the company not to make misleading statements about its security and to adopt a comprehensive written security plan, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's the usual package of, of relief. Yep. So two quick ones that I uh, before we uh, uh, as we must talk about uh, Apple versus the FBI, uh, Michael. Both of these I think you know more about than uh, uh, anybody else. Uh, uh, the CFPB has announced uh, uh, its first data security enforcement order, uh, uh, and the FCC has been proposing privacy rules for ISPs. Uh, uh, anything? Interesting in those, I guess the CFPB uh, thing is it's the very first uh, data security uh, enforcement order that we've seen from them, right? Yeah, it is. Uh, it's you know it it, it reads uh, very similarly to the FTC's settlements, except this one uh, includes a hundred thousand dollar fine. Um, the, the case involved Dwala, which is an online payment system uh, company that operates a payment platform that allows customers to transfer funds to third parties. Uh, and the, according to the CFPB, Dwala made deceptive statements about its data security practices, claiming that they exceeded industry standards, uh, when in fact, according to the, the FTC, they fell short of what uh, reasonable companies uh, do. Um, so, you know, to that extent, I think it's pretty similar to what the, you know, the FTC started out uh, enforcing uh, its authority under the FTC Act against companies that engage in deceptive practices, and then it gradually expanded to going after companies that it found didn't have adequate security at all, regardless of what they said about it. So I, I, I assume we'll see the, the CFPB do the same thing, start out with going after companies that made allegedly false or deceptive statements, and then eventually just go after inadequate practices, security practices on their own. 
Yep, uh, uh, it sounds um, uh, as though notwithstanding all its flaws, um, FTC-style data security regulation is uh, uh, being met with enthusiasm by the regulators, at least, if not the regulated. Yeah, so, the, the, you know, we don't really know what's going to be in the rule. We just so far have seen the FCC's um, press release about uh, an internal notice of proposed rulemaking circulated by Chairman Tom Wheeler to the rest of the commission, which outlines uh, the rules for broadband Internet access service providers. Uh, and it basically is meant to require them to, to be transparent to their customers about how they're going to use, share, and, and safeguard customers' uh, personal information and what their security protections are, are going to be. Uh, and this follows on the decision by the, the FCC last year to, to apply the core customer privacy protections of the Communications Act to ISPs. Um, so, you know, we'll have to wait and see the exact details, but it it seems to me it's fairly straightforward, um, fairly non-controversial once you get over the, the hurdle of, of uh, thinking that ISPs should be regulated uh, by the FCC. That'll be, I mean, that's that's the hard part of this, uh, uh, but it, we've seen it coming for, for years. Uh, uh, Chairman Wheeler has been uh, moving in that direction really since he started at the uh, commission, uh, so it's not completely surprising. All right, let, let, let's talk Apple. Uh, we have to. Uh, there's a deluge of amicus briefs, uh, which I have to say, even I couldn't bring myself to read them all. Uh, they just go. They're, they're endless. They're repetitive. They're uh, 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 not particularly informative. I I don't know, Michael, whether you had a chance to read any of them, but uh, uh, I just I just could not get through more than a couple of them before I started saying, uh, let me read the Wired magazine instead. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Um, a few of them really go into to the merits. Um, you know, I. I also just finished reading the, the government's uh, response to Apple's brief, and that was pretty hard nosed, wasn't it? Uh, it? It was hard nosed, but you know, I, I think Apple's done a Apple's done a great job uh, on the public affairs front. I think it's winning the propaganda war. But the government's brief, I thought, you know, just methodically takes apart Apple's legal arguments point by point by point, um, and in my view, makes a very strong case. I, I continue to believe. That if the if the magistrate judge applies the law under the New York Telephone case, uh, Company case and Ninth Circuit precedent under the All Writs Act, um, the the case will turn on whether the court decides that the government is is imposing an undue or an unreasonable burden on Apple. And that's that's what the case should turn on, and all of the other arguments about you know, First Amendment rights of Apple and due process rights and separation of powers and is is Apple uh, just an innocent bystander has no relation to the, the iPhone. All of those arguments that, that Apple makes, I think, are, are really a smokescreen uh, that, that hide the fundamental core issue of whether the, the burden is undue or not. And, and I think the government makes a very strong argument that the, the burden is not unreasonable here when you compare it to other burdens that have been imposed by courts uh, on companies, including uh, orders under the All Writs Act that require companies to write software to program computers. So it's, it's, a, it's yeah. an excellent brief, really excellent brief. It, 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 is, it is a very good brief. I agree with you, and uh, you might expect I would agree with it, and I do. I, uh, uh, I, I'm a little surprised that you're as um, persuaded as you are, but I think that uh, that does reflect the fact that uh, 
Apple has been desperately turning this into a PR battle because their legal case is not, just not that good. Um, we're going to hear more on March 22nd. Uh, uh, so in about uh, a week, uh, uh, the, uh, there'll be a hearing uh, before the magistrate uh, and all of these arguments will get reprised and uh, uh, the magistrate's questions will likely tell us uh, which way the case is going. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Uh, we also, you know, we, uh, we still have the parallel case in Brooklyn where the government has appealed the magistrate's uh, order denying an All Writs Act uh, order. So the district court will, will weigh in there, um, you know, sometime in the next few weeks, I suspect, unless unless the court, you know, really wants to dig in and write a 50-page opinion like Judge Orenstein did, the magistrate in that case. So we're going we're gonna to have these two cases continuing on parallel tracks uh, for a while, and then they'll both be appealed to the circuit courts. It's, this issue is going to be around for a long time. Yep. Uh, well, um, the uh, uh, Mc, uh, Chairman McCall and Senator Warner uh, are still working their bipartisan uh, proposal for a commission to study the encryption issue more generally. Uh, um, and uh, Senator Feinstein and Chairman Burr uh, from the Senate Intelligence Committee are working on legislation that would uh, essentially regulate end-to-end -end encryption. So we're going to see, uh, you know, whether the legislation to create a commission actually passes, I think is open to question. Same thing with the Feinstein-Burr bill, but uh, it means that Congress is not likely to drop this issue anytime soon. Um, and then there's all this international stuff. Uh, um, I, 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 don't, I don't know, Maury, if you're still on, did you see the French legislators weighing in on uh, uh, on the Apple case? Yes. I mean, it's a law that passed something like 474 to 32, where it gives the government authority to demand this kind of cooperation from operators like what the U.S. is asking from Apple. And I have said many times since the Snowden revelations that what I've seen from countries other than the United States, beyond the shock horror that we see in the press, is that they say, I want some of that authority. And this is another example of that. Yeah, but I think they're going to, uh, they, they want it and are going to, probably going to get it before the U.S. government gets it. Uh, uh, their enthusiasm for this is not limited to what the U.S. government can get from a, a magistrate. Uh, um, I, I think the, this fundamental notion that if uh, Apple loses, uh, countries will come and ask for this is just wrong. It, it, now that Apple has admitted they can do it, uh, other countries are going to demand that uh, Apple do it. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and so the, the really crucial uh, um, decision was to publicize the, uh, uh, the case rather and their capability rather than the outcome of the, the magistrate's decision. Well, I'm, Stuart, yeah, I'm, sure, I'm sure you enjoyed the, uh, the section of the government's brief where they point out that, um, uh, in fact, Apple appears to have made special concessions to China uh, in order to sell the, the iPhone there, um, including adopting the government's special Wi-Fi standard. So the idea that, that uh, you know, an adverse decision in the U.S. is somehow going to convince authoritarian regimes to demand access uh, is just kind of silly since authoritarian regimes don't have to wait for the U.S. to um, set the example. 
Yes, I, I actually thought that the portions of that brief looked like they'd been lifted directly from my uh, letter to uh, to Tim Cook, uh, uh, minus most but not all of the snark. Uh, it, uh, it was, uh, uh, and you know, Apple and their GC is just leading with its chin. Apple, when um, faced with the, uh, the the evidence that uh, Apple has caved to the Chinese from time uh, time and time again. Uh, um, uh, one of the things that I talked about was the fact that there was an almost certainly backdoored encryption algorithm, which is completely secret. Nobody knows. It's just it produces encryption, and if there's a backdoor, we don't know about it. Uh, um, uh, and China has required Apple to install that uh, algorithm in every single iPhone. Uh, and uh, confronted with that, uh, Apple's lawyers uh, uh, on a, a conference call said. Oh well, that backdoor encryption—that's that's a trade issue, not a security issue. I, I I don't know where they where they find these guys, but uh, it's obvious they haven't spent a lot of time in the light of day talking to uh, uh, to people about uh, uh, public affairs because they're really bad at it. All right, and I I, I I don't know if you saw this. I um, could not resist um, the tweeting out uh, a, a joke that only. Those are the people in our audience who are over the age of 70 will actually get. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I, I pointed out that uh, Tim Cook uh, has uh, said, uh, uh, notwithstanding the fact that he gave away all this uh, um, security uh, to the Chinese government, he is suddenly too pure to help the FBI. I said, that reminds me of the guy, uh, I think Oscar Levant, who said about Doris Day, a famously virginal uh, uh, movie star. Uh, yeah, I knew Doris Day before she was a virgin, and I think we all knew Tim Cook before he was a virgin, too, uh, uh, as this evidence is demonstrating. Well, fortunately, I'm not 70 yet, so I don't get that joke, and uh, I don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, you know, I have, to, I have to drag sex into this show sooner or later somehow. So uh, anything else that you want to talk about? Maury, uh, I know that uh, you've been following some of the privacy issues uh, um, and uh, uh, the Hamburg Data Protection Agency uh, has actually lost a court ruling uh, when they were in the process of beating up an American company. That that surprised me. Yeah, Facebook won one and lost one in Germany over the last couple of weeks. The one in Hamburg, a local uh, data regulator had said um, Facebook can't enforce its policy, real names policy uh, that you you know you can sign up a, under a pseudonym in Hamburg, and a court there said. Well, you've got to apply Irish, not German, data protection law to that, which is a, uh, a difficult question. Another court in Germany has actually recently referred that very question to the European Court of Justice. So um, it's, it's an interesting one, and we'll see how it comes out. Uh, on the other side of the question, another court in um, uh, Dusseldorf has ruled that the Facebook like button can't be used on other websites unless they have uh, detailed notice and consent that the, about the data being sent to Facebook, which is a setback for Facebook. I'm sure there will be a lot of other rulings like this in Germany down the road, but it's interesting to watch them as they come. And now to the interview portion of the podcast. Uh, just a reminder that Jason Weinstein and I are joined today by Peter Van Valkenburg and Robin Weissman from Coin Center. And so let, let me first ask you both, um, just to give the listeners some background on Coin Center, why was it formed? What's its mission? 
Thanks for having us. Um, Coin Center is an independent nonprofit advocacy organization that's based here in D.C. We're focused on educating policymakers about um, about cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, of course, being the most popular one, but we're not limited to just Bitcoin. Um, and we do that basically by in three ways. We educate policymakers. So we go around and we talk to members of Congress, people in the administration, state lawmakers, anybody in a policymaking role, sometimes also law enforcement. Um, and we talk a little bit about what the technology is and how it works and what it's not. Sometimes in those conversations, questions about that we can't answer about where the law intersects with the technology come up, and we add that to our the research that we do. Peter's our director of research. We have a lot of research on topics that we have one-pagers, quick little backgrounders that you can read. We have longer papers on in more in-depth topics. So how long has Coin Center been around? We have been around for about a year and a half. I should have started off with that. Um, so, so sometimes in our outreach and in our education, um, we come across a topic that we might not have written about before, and that feeds into our policy research as well. And then lastly, we focus on advocacy. Um, a lot of that is happening right now just in educating policymakers, but we also advocate directly at the state level, um, where a lot of their activity is going on now, and perhaps we can get into that later in, term, in our conversation. Um, for We have a model framework for states to follow on how to approach ad- updating their laws to for money transmission. And how big is how big is Coin Center now? How many people? How, how much how much do you do? How much do you put out in terms of work product? Well, I, we've got uh, full-time professional staff. We've got Robbins, our senior policy counsel. Uh, I'm I'm our director of research. Uh, Jerry Brito, uh, formerly of the Mercatus Center, is our our executive director and the, our our proud captain. And then uh, we've got Naraj, who's our communications guy. He's from Verisign originally. We've got Anthony, who does office. So we, we've got a we've got a good team. It's it's um it's actually a lot of people. I know it doesn't sound like a lot, but a lot of people to be working on such a specific issue, and that's fantastic for the ecosystem. I think to have. You know, really high caliber people, at least, I, you know, I think we're pretty good, um, dedicating all their time to this rather than it just being, a, a, you know, an aside or a hobby or something like that. So as you guys talk to policymakers about this technology uh, and about cryptocurrencies generally, what do you find are their greatest concerns and what do you find are their most common misconceptions? Well, I think we're, we're both going to take a crack at answering this question. But one thing that is that we find in a lot of our outreach is that one of the biggest sort of hurdles before we get to the misconceptions about educating policymakers is how complex this technology is and the, and it just how, how to explain it in a way that people can make sense of it and they can wrap their minds around something that is so new and so different than anything that's existed before. And that's really important because we're talking to people who are in charge with either amending or enforcing laws that were written at a time when technologies were closed, not open. And so a lot of the laws that we currently use today and a lot of laws that might apply to Bitcoin today aren't quite, they don't quite fit perfectly. And so that is a really big challenge. And I think Peter might have a couple of examples. Oh, sir. So, so some of the, some of the misconceptions, um, that, that come out pretty quickly are, are, are things like, um, 
is Bitcoin anonymous? I've heard Bitcoin is this, you know, this great tool for money laundering and this great tool for underground drug markets online. And and the misconception there is that it's anonymous. There is a perception that is not entirely wrong that it is used for some of those things by some people. But, of course, cash is used for money laundering. Apartment buildings in New York are used for money laundering. All kinds of things are used for money laundering. And the lack of anonymity in Bitcoin, the fact that the idea that it's anonymous is a misconception, is actually uh, is actually very pronounced and a, and a pretty good boon to law enforcement in many regards. So we won't get into all the nuts and bolts of how Bitcoin works, because that could be easily one or two podcasts. But there is this blockchain, which is this list of all transactions that have ever happened using Bitcoin. And this is how all blockchains work. And you can mine that for data. So if you're law enforcement, you can trace activity. Now, the activity that you're tracing is is pseudonymous. So it's not uh, it's not Peter Van Valkenburg sent to Robin Wiseman, you know, 10 Bitcoin. It's AB72 sent to B7849, 10 Bitcoin. But if you can trace those transactions to some identifiable point and you know, the case here for the drug market thing would probably be Ross Ulbrich in the Silk Road, where they found his computer because he was attached to an uh, insecure Wi-Fi network in a library. They found his computer. They found the private keys on the computer. Those private keys deterministically, its math, match a public address on the blockchain. We now have his full transaction history. All of those drug trades that had a fee, the fee went to his account. And we, it's great evidence. It's much, much easier in some regards than actually going and subpoenaing information from five different banks in the correspondent banking system and hoping you get the answers and hoping they did their due diligence. Yeah, it's, it's probably that a similar set of transactions in cash probably wouldn't have been recorded in, a, in an immutable ledger. Definitely. If you have a pallet of $100 bills, that's a much better <laughs> way of moving a lot of money. Well, you got to deal with shipping, I guess, and things like that. Different set of problems, but no record necessarily. There has to be a record with the blockchain because that's how the system works. And then the other misconception that we run into a lot um, is that Bitcoin's not regulated. Is that it's some sort of um, you know fully off the grid system that 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 there's no government intervention in, that there's no regulation of. That is the Wild West. And there, there's two things that's wrong with that sentiment. The first is, is that actually it's, it's regulated very much by itself, A. So there's a lot of cryptography, which is, you know, the science of keeping secrets. And there's a lot of economic incentives built into the protocol. People are rewarded for performing honestly. And those two things are actually used to self-regulate. So there's no SRO, but the technology in a certain sense is an SRO, which is kind of cool because people are incentivized to do the right thing, not to commit, commit fraud because they don't get rewarded for fraud by the blockchain. So it's regulated by itself, and it is also regulated by governments. So most laws that deal with financial instruments, financial transactions, are written as activities-based regulation. Did you move this money? Especially money transmission is very broadly based. So it's did you accept money or monetary value or something that substitutes for monetary value and transmit it? Well, I don't know of any Bitcoin advocates out there, even the anarchists, who think that Bitcoin isn't monetary value or a substitute for it because it better be, right. otherwise it doesn't work. So there you are, right there. It falls under the Bank Secrecy Act. And the Treasury and FinCEN have offered guidance clarifying exactly how, which parties need to do KYC. Uh, and 
and it's regulated, and it's regulated in other areas. Yeah, I would also add um, the IRS has designated that Bitcoin is property and not currency. Um, the CFTC has ruled that it falls under their jurisdiction as well. Um, the SEC has not really taken a position on Bitcoin per se, but has had a couple of enforcement actions in the area. Um, Specifically about about people who are running Ponzi schemes. Uh, right, and and I so sh- yeah, in in the SEC context, it is generally in a fraud in a fraudulent setting. So it's like. just it's just another Ponzi scheme case, and it happens to have been right. Bitcoin use as the payment rail. The thing that's interesting is that what is interesting about Bitcoin is it can be so many different things, and so it can function in a lot of different ways, and so. When you're looking at it, I think, as a regulator, you have to take the lens of the regulatory agency that you're sitting at to figure out how does how do, how are we how are we going to look at Bitcoin. So, example for example, at the CFPB, they issued um, a guidance about the dangers of Bitcoin for from a consumer perspective, and that is completely appropriate for the CFPB to do. And like Peter said, at um, FinCEN, there's the BSA. Um, anti-money laundering provisions that need to be followed. And then it gets and, really complicated at the state. And then level. at the state, I was just looking to Peter to think, are we going to go into the states? And well, so, we don't have to go into depth, but there's 50 of them, <laughs> and there's territories, actually, right. and they all have a little piece of jurisdiction here. Right, so, and the way that comes up is if you are a money transmitter, you would have to apply for a money transmission license, and that is a license that's issued by the states. And you need to have not only a license in the state in which you're operating, but you need to have a license in every state in which you have customers, which means that practically you need to obtain licenses in all jurisdictions. And that's a very timely and costly undertaking. It's also an undertaking that's made more complicated by the fact that a lot of the money transmission laws in the states were written at a time that Bitcoin couldn't even be conceived and are now in need of updating. And as the states go and need to update their laws, every state is coming up with a different kind of spin on it. New York had the bit license, which they actually didn't need legislation to do. Um, there's legislation in California. In New Hampshire. New Hampshire. In Connecticut. In uh, New Jersey. In North Carolina. In we could go on. We can go there's, on. There's at least 12 now, maybe even 13. We've got a good regulatory tracker on our website, coincenter.org, um, that we try and keep updated that has all of the pending bills or guidance issued by states. But even that is, is, is becoming difficult to update <laughs> at this point. So we started this this train of, of thought on the question of what are the common misperceptions oh, wow. um, when you're talking to policymakers. And I'm just curious, mm-hmm. this kind of conversation that we've just had, is this is this the first conversation <laughs> that you have with policymakers? Is there first a, a, a kind of Bitcoin 101, then a here's kind of the basics of regulation mm-hmm. now, then here's the basics of how Bitcoin fits into your particular committee's mm-hmm. jurisdiction or your agency's jurisdiction? How does it tend to work? So the answer to that question is yes. <laughs> um, it depends really on how the question comes to us. So at Coin Center, we do a number of different kinds of advocacy. We will go, we will identify people that we think need to know and understand the technology just because of their committee of jurisdiction or because of their state or because of a nexus that we might determine. Um, we also and that might be start off as here's a 101, but quickly kind of evolves into the kind of conversation we are having here. Um, 
sometimes we are going into an office because there's a member that's expressed some sort of skepticism about Bitcoin or a law enforcement official that is thinking that Bitcoin's the worst thing ever or some kind of investigation that's happening. And that conversation obviously starts off at a very different place. Um, One of the the most rewarding things that happens for me sometimes is sometimes somebody will actually want to take a deep dive hmm. and, and is interested to the point where they'll sit with you for two hours and ask you, yeah. like, what is mining is is the doomsday question to some extent. <laughs> it's, it's so many moving parts, and, and we're going to be here for a while. Um, and what is consensus and proof of work and elliptical curve cryptography and, and hashing algorithms and all this. And, and you can actually, I think, in two hours, even with someone who's not technical, you can actually get people to a real deep understanding of how these systems are going to work. Yeah. That, 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 that I love. We don't normally do that, but there are occasions when you have a really educated staffer who's got the basics and they want to go yeah. all the way and find out about how it works. What Peter cool. just said is, reminds me of something funny that happens every once in a while because we talked a little bit about the challenge when you're going and talking to a policymaker and I think I said that it's explaining the technology or understanding the technology. But sometimes you go in and you think you're having a 101, and then they'll start asking you a question. It's like, how? What do you think of multisig? Yeah, I'm or like, some, I love something crazy. And, then, <laughs> and to be honest, that's why I bring Peter with me everywhere. <laughs> well, but that, it's an interesting point. Let me let me pick up on something that Robin you had said just a few minutes ago, which is um, that. You know, this whole conversation has been basically about Bitcoin, the currency. But there's more than just Bitcoin, the currency. There's other applications that use the same blockchain technology, uh, Peter, that that you mentioned, Mm -hmm. um, and use the the coin as simply a token for, Mm -hmm. you know, for for all sorts of different things. What are some of those other things that Bitcoin and the the Bitcoin blockchain are, are, are used for? Yeah. Rob and I were actually just talking about new ways to talk about this idea because it's a tough one to explain. And, and Robin suggested, um, let's think about um, the early days of the Internet and what it was supposed to be, what everyone wanted it to be. It was really this magical way for people to talk with other people, to send them rich text and images and to cut out a lot of the intermediaries, you know, like this was going to disaggregate the big newspapers, this was going to disaggregate the big network television stations and things like that. And a lot of that happened, and it was great, because it's competition, you know, it's a good market. With a quick stop through America Online. (laughs) (laughs) With a quick quick stop through America Online. But then what happened was the, the Internet was not complete. For one, there was no native payment method. So you had these sort of, these ad hoc kind of kludges built on, like, Online banking isn't actually about sending money online. It's about a website that gets you to a bank so you can tell the bank to do something. And they still do it offline, or they do it through SWIFT. They do it through an information protocol that is not open like the Internet is open. And and this goes for a lot of things, like our personal data, like our or even email, which was originally peer-to-peer. We use Gmail now, and Google ends up with all of our data. So the banks still have all our financial data. Google still has all of our email data. Um, we still have all these intermediaries, and the Internet didn't disaggregate them. It just gave us a better way to talk to them, which was great. What we're talking about with like a, like a larger what the blockchain revolution could be is a way of, of really disaggregating even those intermediaries. So, that, so Bitcoin's the great first case where, oh, if I want to send money, I don't use the Internet as a way to talk to a bank to ask them to send dollars. I actually send bits. I send pieces of information that the peer-to-peer network, the Internet, recognize as having value. And I don't have to deal with someone in between. But you can do anything. You could send personal data, like health records, this way. 
You could send stock certificates this way. You could send messages about who's willing to drive by my house and pick me up and take me for a ride for five bucks. That could be peer-to-peer. You could disrupt Uber, which is disrupting everyone. <laughs> This is great. And, and that's the exciting thing, is it's a way of building trust between individuals so that we don't need middlemen to build that trust for us. And that doesn't mean we're going to fire everyone, that this isn't necessarily like a jobs crisis in the work, because there's still going to be front ends. There's still going to be like the great user interface that has to be designed by talented coders and artists. But the back room stuff, the back office stuff, the pipes that connect all of that, That will be shared and communal and incentivized through blockchain systems. Well, it's funny. In, in, in a sense, what, not, it's not so much that people are going to, be, are, are going to get fired, but, but people can actually get directly paid for doing things also by true. other people yeah. who true, want yeah. to uh, be the beneficiaries of what they're doing. Right. So it's, like the, it's, it's what we talk about with the sharing economy or some people uh, derogatorily call the gig economy, which I think is unfortunate because it's actually a great force for like getting people to be employed, which is fantastic, and to do the thing that they love. Um, it's the sharing economy without Uber taking a cut or deciding what the prices should be. It's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. So, that's, so that's the, I can do this directly with you, and I can, I can pass information, I can pass records, I can get paid or pay uh, mm -hmm. directly with you. Mm -hmm. What else can we do on the blockchain? Isn't that enough? <laughs> Isn't that enough? Yeah, no, it's 2016. There needs to be more to that now. So. I, think, I think we're beginning to see the beginnings of a lot of it right now. But, you know, when you were originally learning about the Internet or you got email for the first time, you couldn't picture an Uber. So I know it's not a completely satisfactory ex ex answer, but to say – There's a lot that we don't know what can happen yet. And you asked a little bit at the beginning about what Coin Center does and part of our mission. Part of our mission is to make sure that when we are thinking about rules and regulations and how to amend current laws to address Bitcoin now or cryptocurrency, blockchain, whatever you want to call it now, we are making sure to preserve the future for these things to come online. So, for example, when you're thinking about regulating money transmission and you're thinking about the issue of custody and what does custody mean, we're very careful to make sure that people understand what custody is and not just that the use of a small fraction of a Bitcoin, which might not have inherent financial value, could be used for something else later on. Yeah. Um, and so there are, I mean, I'm... A good example there. Um, so Robin's talking about, sometimes we call it colored coins, mm -hmm. which sounds a little weird. I like watermarked tokens. Sounds a little, a little richer. Yeah, that's good. The idea that you use this tiny little bit of a Bitcoin to symbolize something else. So it could be the access token that says this person who holds this has a right to access those health records. Right. This person who holds this has actually 10 shares of Apple. This person who holds this, it's a bearer instrument for anything you want to attach to it that can then travel on a ledger that is safe because... It's protected with cryptography and economic incentives. And the reason that's also important is because that tiny little colored coin or token or whatever you want to call it would be the instrument that drives what other later thing you do, whether it be digital rights management or whether it be settlement or whether it be what identity. Identity. Yeah. I mean, these are all different possible applications that people are working on now. And so when we filed a comment in the bit license, uh, we and a number of other and some small companies in the space that we, we discussed this with 
talked about how, look, your your regulation purports to govern all transactions made using Bitcoin. What about these tiny transactions that nobody's using to send money? They're using to do something. One name was a company that filed in that process that we talked with, and they're great. They're trying to build an identity system. And in order to do that, they need to send little tiny amounts of Bitcoin because you can't actually write to the blockchain. This is maybe what we've been missing until now. You can't write data to the blockchain without having a transaction. That's just how it works. So it's going to be a tiny uh, de minimis transaction, but it's going to be a transaction. And fortunately, there were a lot of things in the bit license that we ended up still um, lamenting. But fortunately, uh, the DFS did put in a non-financial uses exemption in the, tran in the transmission passage with an eye towards exempting these services. But but it's it's problems like that that we're going to continue to encounter, especially at the state level where money transmission laws are drafted so broadly that they cover possibly everything. Like a lot of people don't know Airbnb is a money transmitter because they hold the money for the people who are renting out the apartment briefly and then move it forward, you know? That's kind of odd, isn't it? They're money transmitter? <laughs> Maybe some other regulation, but not money transmission, right? Well, then, as you said, then the then Bitcoin and the blockchain can actually get them out of the, the money transmitting business. <laughs> Bitcoin right. and the blockchain can get rid of Airbnb, That's too. Right. <laughs> Along with Uber. I really like Airbnb. <laughs> but, you know, it's it, one of the things that I find interesting is people are impatient to find out what the use cases are of Bitcoin and the blockchain. And, um, you know, as you said, Robin, when the Internet first kind of became known to the general public, it was known to criminals long before it was known to the general public. But when it was known to the general public, it was primarily for email. And to suggest that the Internet is only for email is is, is absurd. Because as you said, not only did could we not have seen Uber in the mid-'90s, but we couldn't have seen Google or Facebook or Amazon or Airbnb or Twitter or, or really any of the applications that are now part of the fabric of our lives. And the same is true, it seems to me, with the blockchain, that Bitcoin is a, is a use case for the blockchain, but, but by no means the only one. But kind of as a, a corollary to this discussion of, of Bitcoin and as opposed to the blockchain, there's a lot of, of reports in the press lately and a lot of discussion in the industry about the difference between the Bitcoin blockchain and private blockchains. Could you talk to our listeners a little bit about what that debate is, is really about? Um, so in the early days of the Internet, uh, there were a lot of big corporations that were like, oh, cool, new trans, you know, uh, new, uh, new communications layer for, for stuff. I am not comfortable with it being open to everyone, though. I'm not comfortable with it being this thing that's architected to be global and and open. And they wanted to build their own private intranets. And we saw that early on. And we even saw that on the consumer level to some extent with like AOL and these places that would be content hubs. And you don't want to explore the World Wide Web. That's scary. You want the sports scores delivered right to your you know dashboard. And you, you, you want a nice message board that has pictures of things that you think are cute, like kittens and things like that. And an email address. And an email address. But it turned out that that model, while it has some benefits because it creates some efficiencies from centralization – just didn't offer enough diversity and flavor and freedom, I think. And the real Internet, the World Wide Web, finally promised and delivered on that as the, as the customer experience of visiting a web page gradually came to the same level user interface and usability-wise as using AOL. And that was a real revolution because it meant anybody can blog. You don't need to go and you sign up with AOL and say, hey, I'd like to blog. You just create a blog. You could write your own software. You could use one of many competitive providers that are all on a seamless, interconnected, not cordoned off, not walled garden network. And I think we're seeing the same thing with Bitcoin is what the sort of roundabout answer is, is that there are banks that are thinking, oh, cool. 
new financial rails to do settlement on. I'm not comfortable with the big open one. That's kind of weird and scary. And it does. It does provide real regulatory challenges, for example. It's why we have a job explaining it, because it's harder to explain. And you have questions about sanctions and you have questions about money laundering. But I think they're all answerable. So it makes sense that banks right now are thinking, hmm, maybe we should have a little closed system, a little walled garden that, that saves us a lot of effort, that maybe helps us uh, cut some of our back offices services because it's streamlined. But I think ultimately, you want applications with money. Money shouldn't just sit in a bank. It should go run through a corporation. It should go run through, you know, the things you want to do with it. And you want that money to be connected to any number, hundreds, thousands of services. And you don't want somebody saying you're allowed to have a connection to that money pipe. You're not allowed to have a connection. You want that to be open, just like cash. You know, cash is great. It, it, <laughs> it, has, its, its, it has its challenges, But really what it enables is financial inclusion and innovation. It allows anybody to have a bank account because they can have a mattress if they can't have a real bank account. And it allows anybody to, to help fund a business or help get started. You know, it, it, it's not something that I think rich people think about much because they all have credit cards uh, or people who, are, who find it easy to get investors because they, they can get investors. But it's going to matter a lot when it comes to bringing more people into the economy. And that is, I think, the biggest, you know, the, the best thing that we can do with the technology. And that's why I feel passionate about it. You know, if more, as much bring them into the economy, as you said earlier, Peter, bring them into the economy on their terms, mm -hmm. doing things that they want to be doing right. and finding yeah. markets for themselves. Exactly. I would add on the um, blockchain, private blockchain score, from a policy perspective, It's important to note that there are very different questions associated with each of those things. Um, you know, the private blockchains, a little less scary from a legal regulatory perspective, and probably why some of the banks and others are wanting to dip a toe in by using that. Um, Although the, also less secure. Right, so less secure in, in a lot of ways. It's an excellent point. Um, but we at Coin Center also want to keep the focus on the on the public blockchain because It's not a choice between the two, but making sure that we have the right regulations in place and the right protections in place, regardless of what you're using, is really important. And so I think sometimes when we talk about the private blockchains, people get a lot more comfortable and we start shying away from some of the harder questions and we just think, oh, that would just be a much easier world to live in. Yeah, because it's really not that different than the world we're living in now. Yeah, and, and I think the, the regulatory questions are, are going to continue, and it's always going to be difficult. I, I Sometimes, this just occurred to me, I was thinking that, you know, there's the old newspapers and the old television stations, and everyone knew they were journalists. Of course they're journalists. They get First Amendment protections. I mean, everyone gets First Amendment protections, but they don't have to reveal their sources, all sorts of things like that. And then WikiLeaks comes along. Is WikiLeaks a journalist? Is WikiLeaks a newspaper? It, it feels like we don't treat it the same, because... What it is, is is what journalism in some regards looks like when it happens on an open network. And we can have a lot of debates as to whether that's the world we want to live in or not. You know, moral debates maybe, thorny debates, difficult ones that make us feel uncomfortable. Um, but I think that's to some extent some of the challenges we're going to have. We have these new businesses who say, is that a bank? I don't know what that is. Should we treat it fairly? Is it doing the things we want it to do? And And we just really want a level playing field. It's and I'd say it's probably a good thing that Stuart Baker isn't here in the room for this interview, or we would have gone now down to a, a, a First Amendment argument about WikiLeaks. <laughs> um, but is there also kind of this middle ground? 
is there a way to have kind of a side activity off of the public blockchain that then links back into the public blockchain? Yeah, yeah. And that's really exciting. So, so we were talking about watermarked tokens or collar coins or however you want to say it. Um, that idea is being taken and made richer by a lot of technologists, by some really brilliant coders. Um, there's people who are building layers on top of Bitcoin that would enable you to issue your own token securely and verifiably and transparently because it's undergirded by this public network. There's another great um, technology called Ethereum, which is based on some of the same uh, design principles. And the goal they have in mind, in fact, there's a tutorial. It's a, there's, a, there's three tutorials on their website right now. The third one is how to make your own central bank money. And it's, it's, made, it's not disingenuous. They actually want to allow uh, somebody who, who thinks that this is a great foundation, just like TCPIP is a great foundation for the New York Times to put their newspaper out there. They want Ethereum to be a foundation for the Federal Reserve to put FedCoin out there. And it would provide the Federal Reserve with a fully transparent and auditable way of adding to the money supply these little FedCoin tokens or taking them out of the money supply. You know, Milton Friedman would be salivating. You know, this is this is actual monetary. If policy. somebody could teach him how to turn on his computer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I think we're out of time. Thank you to to Robin and Peter for joining us, and and I would just put in a plug for uh, both the state uh, regulation uh, tracker on their website, CoinCenter.org, and the backgrounders. Um, for those of you, whether you're uh, a technologist or a novice at this stuff, the the backgrounders are short and they're very well written and they're very accessible and they're they're really brilliant and and uh, updated fairly regularly on topics of interest so I, I highly recommend uh, the backgrounders and the state regulation tracker and um, thank you both for joining us and we'd love to have you on again thank Thanks you so for much. having us all right uh, well uh, we're trying to cle- stay on schedule so uh, uh, let me thank Michael Vadis, uh, uh Jason Weinstein Maury Shank uh, Alan Cohn uh, as well as uh, our uh, interview guests, uh, Robin Weissman and uh, Peter Van Falkenberg. Uh, uh, as always, the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast is open to feedbacks and questions, suggestions, candidates, topics to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com or leave a message at 202-862-5785. Uh, and we're always delighted when you leave us good reviews on iTunes uh, uh, or other podcast aggregators. Uh, I think it's only a matter of time before uh, Apple realizes that we're on iTunes and takes us off. So uh, keep giving us good reviews for as long as it lasts. Uh, This has been episode 105 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Coming up, we're going to be joined by Adam Sigal, uh, uh, the author of Hacked World Order, by Perianne Boring uh, of uh, the Chamber of Digital Commerce, and by Suzanne Spaulding, who's the Undersecretary for the National Protectorate Directive. Uh, We hope you'll join us for those and other uh, episodes as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.